how well are you sleeping these days? Okay, so this is soundly and this is fitfully. Just put your arm somewhere on that scale, soundly, fit, fitfully. How well are you sleeping these days? Oh, both at once, right in the middle, kind of, sort of, mm-hmm, all right. Um, our sleep may be interrupted for a variety of reasons, but number one of them could be that we are disturbed in our spirit, in our emotions, and our body reacts to what is going on internally. In the wee hours of the morning, we can call the police if our neighbors are disturbing the peace. But what if the disturbance of our peace is not a loud midnight party going on next door? There are so many factors that disturb our inner peace, and that may be the least of them. So what disturbs our peace? What gets our guts roiling? Help me, help me out. What disturbs, Injustice. what? Injustice. Injustice. Finances. Finances. Work. Work. Health. Health. Children. Children. <laughs> Preston. <laughs> Can you do a counter disturbance? <laughs> Call out your parents. Parents. But children, yes. Family. Let's just say family. Yes. Politics. Yes. Conflict. Conflict. Car, troubles. Car troubles. I hear that. What? What? Weather. Weather. Weather disturbs the peace. Okay. That is a Californian speaking right there. Um, I also thought of our security and our future. Uh, worry over other people. School. School is a great disturber of the peace. And then I thought about ourselves. You know that song, it's me, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. Yes, I disturb my own peace sometimes. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and today our topic is peace. And I'm saying categorically that there is a scarcity of peace. Is anyone going to challenge me on that statement? Okay. Well, see, some of us have peace right now. Say we are in a peaceful time of life. But will peace last? That is the question. And my answer to that question is nope. Will peace last? Nope. But our passage today disagrees with me. Imagine that, the Bible disagreeing with me. And whenever that happens, it's my cue to pay close attention and to learn something. So we are in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing the plunder. God is the intended hearer of this passage. Notice all the yous directed to God. The poet is saying, God, I am in wonder at you. Look at what you have done. 
the gloom, the darkness, the oppression that the people have been walking under is finally breaking apart. They have been in that dark for a very long time, but now they see a great light, not a candle in the dark, not a flashlight, not a lantern, which just gives you a little puddle of light at your feet, a great light. On them, a great light has shined. Their darkness is gone. They no longer have to fumble, hands outstretched, groping for an exit to this dark and burdensome place. Darkness is a metaphor for death and depression, and it's a powerful metaphor because we can feel the danger lurking in the dark. The blindness and the confusion darkness brings a trapped lack of exit, helplessness of the dark. And the contrast from darkness to light is intense. There is no question who is behind the great light for you, O God, are a bringer of joy. Four joys in verse 3. Joy words. Let us know the increasing and multiplying joy that God brings. And I want to be there. That's the party I want to go to. The rejoicing party, the exulting party of people who have been hopelessly and helplessly lost. And people who believed all was lost, but now are found by God. Joy is all the sweeter when it's been missing. And now in the next few verses, I want you to look at the fours. There are three Fours, which will give us the reason for the joy in verse four, in verse three. Why rejoice? Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken, as in the day of Midian. Oh, do you remember, my people Israel, the day of Midian? Do you remember how the Midianites oppressed you for seven Long years, the prophet reminds them. Hmm. How old were you seven years ago? Do the math. And then imagine spending the last seven years of your life under oppressive rule. And I do not mean the opposite political party oppressing you. If that's what we think oppression is, we are privileged people indeed. I mean real oppression where the foreign government tells you what you can and what you cannot do, where your freedoms are squashed and you live in fear, where foreign rule uses you and your land and your resources for their own enrichment, giving nothing in return. So let me tell you, after those long seven years, let me tell you about the day of Midian. And that story is told in Judges chapter 7 through 8. Seven years the Midianites oppressed the people of Israel, but God raised Gideon to lead the people. And Gideon raised an army to free his people. But God said, in this battle with the Midianites, this army is way too big. Let all the soldiers who are afraid go home. And the army went from 32,000 men to 10,000, less than a third. The army is still way too big, God said, so the 10,000 were taken down to a drink from the stream, and every soldier who knelt down and drank like a normal person by scooping the water up to your face and drinking out of your hands, those soldiers were dismissed. And those who lapped the water like a dog were left. Lapped the water like a dog. Who drinks that way? 
Put your face all the way into the stream to lap the water like the dog. Well, there were 300 weirdos <laughs> who drank that way out of 10,000. And the Midianite army is facing them. And can you just imagine whittling down an army until it's minuscule? The Midianite army was described as laying along the valley as thick as locusts, and their camels were without number, countless as the sand on the seashore. And then a few verses later, we're told it was 135,000 soldiers. 135,000 soldiers against 300 weird soldiers. So why? Why did God do this? He wanted the people to know God as their liberator. God would be their savior, and against overwhelming force, God would free his people with the power of his hand and not with human strength. So on the day of Midian, let me tell you, it was actually on the night of Midian, because it was at nighttime, Gideon staged those 300 soldiers around the enemy camp, a trumpet in one hand, and a clay jar with a light hidden inside it. In the other hand, not a sword in sight. And at the right moment, they smashed their clay lamps open so the light shone, and they played their trumpets loud, and the enemy panicked. The enemy eliminated itself. On the day of Midian, the people knew God as the most powerful savior who, no matter what the force arrayed against them, can and will save. So my question to you today is, do you know God as your savior, as your liberator? Have you ever needed saving? If you have never needed saving, you do not need God as your savior. But have you needed saving, if not from an enemy soldier, from the enemy of poverty? from the enemy of a system that is designed to press you down, from the enemy of you in your fight against yourself to be a better person, have you needed saving from yourself? From the enemy of sin, from the enemy of evil, from the enemy of disease, from the enemy of old age, from the enemy of death? If you do know God as Savior, oh, the joy the exaltation, the rejoicing in God who brings us freedom. Woo! Woo! I mean, the joy. The joy. God, our only Savior. But there's more, more reason to rejoice. You know, you might think that this is a sermon on joy. That's going to come next week. But it's hard to separate joy and peace and hope and love in Advent, and they all come into every Sunday of Advent. Why else rejoice? Verse 5 in Isaiah chapter 9, 4, all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Now in chapter 2 of Isaiah, the prophet had prophesied about the instruments of war, the weapons of war being turned into instruments of peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks 
and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But here in chapter 9, verse 5, the painful remnants of war, the blood-soaked clothing and boots are to be destroyed. And that's different than the weapons, than the destruction of weapons. To me, this verse speaks of the pain, the death, the memories, the emotional toll of war, both waged by the soldier who terrorizes the enemy, but also worn on the soldier's psyche themselves as clothes are worn on their, on their body, the blood, the PTSD, the emotional aftermath will all be destroyed, burnt to ash, never to rise again. Surely this is a great cause for deep rejoicing. But that is not all. There is one more reason to rejoice for the fierce joy of verse 3, and it's found in verses 6 and 7. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Why rejoice? Well, God has broken the oppression. All instruments of oppression and remnants of war are destroyed. Those are the previous two verses that look back at the terrible things the people had gone through and the promise of God to set it right. But now looking at the future, a child has been born for us. If you get rid of the wrong that is done in this world, what replaces it? Haven't we seen in the pages of history that another different wrong replaces the original one? Things that start out good get corrupted somehow and that the promise of peace is not delivered? Now, of course, the first listeners of this prophetic poem would have understood the fulfillment of, these, of this prophecy to be the birth probably of King Hezekiah. But did Hezekiah or any other king or any political leader since establish endless peace, much less uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore? Nope. That's what I said at the beginning. Nope. But since the birth of Jesus, his followers have understood that the child whose birth we celebrate at Christmas is our Messiah, the only one who can carry the weight of justice and righteousness forever, the baby child who can rightfully be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, this infant and only he can bring endless peace for the throne of David. And there's no hyperbole or exaggeration in those titles for this baby. Jesus can do all this and more. So the answer is really yes. Yes, there is peace that will last. 
And the person in charge of that peace, powerful enough to deliver that peace, is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. There will be war no more. Can we even imagine this? We cannot escape the political nature of this prophecy and its talk of authority, government, kingdom, righteousness, and justice. And even if our imagination fails us, and even if our cynicism says we can't see this fulfilled in our lifetime, even if we feel powerless in the face of a much greater foe, we who follow the Prince of Peace must use the strength that he gives us for the purpose of peace. Not for passivity, not for drama, not for negativity, not for personal gain and selfishness, for peace. We must and we get to participate in bringing peace as we follow the Prince of Peace. I wonder if Jesus had in mind Isaiah chapter 9 when he said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Peacemaking is tremendously difficult and complicated, but its starting place and ending place is Jesus. And as his followers we must ask ourselves, do my attitudes, do my way of thinking, my actions reflect my Jesus, my Prince of Peace? Do people know that I follow Jesus because of my peacemaking attitude and actions? What a challenge that is to us. Well, it struck me looking at this poem that there are five canvases, five scenes, vivid Im images that the writer paints for us. We can see it's, po it's a poem by the way it's written, in, written out in the Bible, not as prose. Five scenes to impress upon us the salvation that God brings. Now, I was thinking about those scenes. They're so striking. They're metaphorical. They're presented to us. If I was an artist, how would I render them? So I want you to think for yourself, how do you picture yourself coming out of captivity, out of a broken world, out of disaster, out of wretchedness, and into God's salvation? The first scene is the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, I am not an artist. But there's a program, an artificial intelligence program, where you can type up a description and then a unique image of that description will be created by artificial intelligence. So I plugged in these verses to see what, what artificial intelligence came up with. And this is the image that came out of plugging in those words, walking in darkness, seeing a great light. Now, that's, I thought that was pretty good. That's scene one. Now scene two is celebration, festivities, spontaneous expressions of joy when war has ended and a time of peace has begun joy as, as, as at a harvest. This is what it came up with. That's scene two. Scene three, the boots and uniforms of war are burned for fuel. Let's see what the computer came up with. Pretty good. 
Scene four is a birth announcement. A crown prince has been born. And this is really the centerpiece of the whole poem. God's salvation will come through this baby given to us. That's what the computer came up with. Now scene five, the future, the baby king is now the righteous and just king sitting on the throne of David, establishing endless peace. In all the other scenes, I was able to come up with something mentally that I, I kind of compared to what the computer was going to bring up. But endless peace, justice, righteousness, I could not picture what that would look like. So I was especially interested in what artificial intelligence would come up with. So it came up with four images. Let me show you the first three. Here's one, endless peace. Two, three. Do you, does this speak endless peace to you? What do you notice about these images, these three images? No people. There are no people in them. I did come up with one last image for peace. It's, I mean, the computer came up with this. It's this one. How many people in that one? And, you know, peace is kind of this way when it's even one person. Of course what disturbs our peace mostly is other people. Relationships are not quite right. Strong differences of opinions are expressed. People don't do the right thing. This world would be so much more peaceful of a place if it didn't have people in it. <laughs> yes, but God is a God of righteousness and justice. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will establish endless peace. And the prophet reminds us this morning that God's will for Righteousness and justice and peace is made flesh in the weakest of human creatures, a little baby. Isaiah foretold it, not fully understanding what or even who he was speaking of. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 2 through 7 is a poem, and I would love to hear this whole passage read as spoken word. It's got cadence, it's got drama, it's got the poetic phrases. Someone who can do spoken word could bring it to life for us so that by the end of it, the hairs on the back of our neck would be standing on end and we ourselves would be standing shouting hallelujah and we are not a shouting church. But if someone read it just right, and if we absorb the full meaning of the words, we would be thrilled. Our hearts would be lifted up to heaven in praise, and we could not help but add our voice in response. So when someone asks the question, is there peace that lasts? The answer from every single one of us who has read this passage would be a resounding yes. Yes. Do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know that he can give us peace that passes all understanding, peace that is beyond our circumstances, beyond what is wrong with our world, peace that is firmly based in who Jesus is, believing what he promises us? Do you know Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Let's bow our heads.
Lord Jesus, hear the yeses of our heart. And if we have a nope in our heart too, hear that. Hear the disappointment and hear maybe even the anger and hear the questioning and hear the brokenness of our nopes and turn them into a yes to you, into faith in you, because we accept you, Jesus, as our Prince of Peace. We have much to learn from you. We ask for your healing in all those broken places and broken relationships. We ask, God, for your healing and for peace. And we want to lift our hearts to you, the Prince of Peace. In your name we pray, amen.